You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. And you know, with Okapi, they're solitary. So you're lucky if you find, you're lucky if you find one and then, then it's just that. What can they teach us? So they have these things called ossicones, which are two skin covered horns on their heads. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Organizations. So you can find mm-hmm. them at www okapiconservation.org They were established a little over 30 years ago. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com Alright, welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Hello, Angie. Today is a beautiful summer day in New Zealand. And it's a beautiful summer day in Gainesville, Florida. Is it? It is! <laughs> Summer, it's I know. There. Well, we're already, not that you remember uh, Fahrenheit yeah. anymore, but we're already in 80 degree weather here. It's a little wow. premature, um, but eh, I, I'll take it yeah, almost, cold weather. Yeah, almost spring there. So uh, that's the thing about Florida. One day it's, you know, 20 degrees F, and then the next day it's 80. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, uh, don't miss that. Yeah, don't miss that. So today we're talking about a really amazing mammal. Beautiful, beautiful and unusual okapi. Yeah. And the, the cool thing is about, about this one when we decided to do it was this was actually like one of the first zoo animals I ever really got to interact with and touch and feel and feed uh, with my wife when she was working as a keeper. She was actually, this was one of her animals that she got to work with and it was just an amazing experience. Wow. You know, I, I agree. They're, we're going to describe them here, but they're just... A yeah. beautiful animal. I don't know how else to say it. Everybody know, who knows me knows I'm yeah. biased because I love hoofs and horns. Yeah. I love ungulates, yeah. of course. But they just, there's, you know, they're nicknamed either the forest giraffe or the zebra giraffe because yeah. they literally have the best of both worlds going on as far right. as body shape right. and coat patterns. And they're just cool. They're, they're shy and secretive and elegant. I didn't get a chance to work with them when I was a keeper. But I have had a chance to interact with them at some local conservation places here in Florida. So I've been up close and personal, and they're just breathtaking. So yeah. when I was preparing for this podcast, as I normally do, I, I tend to watch – I read a lot. But I'll find myself watching mm. some videos. Right. And there was a video of some copy. I think it was at maybe the Columbus Zoo. I'm not sure. And it was a wonderful mm-hmm. documentation 
of how the keepers were training a pregnant Okapi for an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. All, oh, vo- wow. all, all voluntary contact. The Okapi's just standing right. there eating some treats with the keeper, training it and telling it to stay quietly. And then the veterinarian comes in with the ultrasound probe and just puts it on the Okapi's belly. And then you, see, mm-hmm. you look on the ultrasound screen and you can see the bones and the, the tissue right, of right. this this baby Okapi. And I don't know, Chris, for, I, for the first time in a long time, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to go back and be a hoofstock keeper. <laughs> I was just like, I, I miss yeah. it so much. I was just like, oh, I know. that is what I, I want to be doing today and tomorrow. Not and writing. Every, <laughs> yeah, and every day of my life. And um, yeah, I just, I mean, I, I think about being, you know, missing those. I miss the animals I used to work with every day. But just that connection of helping save a highly endangered large right, mammal like right. that. I mean, the key, the keeper staff and veterinarian staff at the zoo are doing incredibly important work. And right. I, I, I was just longing, really, really longing to be a part of that a little bit more hands-on uh, aspect of animal care. Well, here you go, Angie. Just keep writing, finish out your <laughs> dissertation, graduate this spring, become Dr. Adkin, and then you could be out there doing the ultrasounds. I know, And the keepers right? can be holding it for you, right? Well, so, I, yeah, I think yeah. I'd rather be the one feeding it, though. I love feeding animals. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's fun. So, they're, yeah, they're really docile, really great to handle, really great to work with. You know, we're going to have an interview with somebody that, that has worked with these animals before coming up. My you dream know, so job, the, the, the Okapi yeah. Keeper. <laughs> yes, and he has worked very closely with these animals, and he's going to give us some insight on that. So just to give a description, if you haven't seen an Okapi, and, and from what Angie's been saying, you know, really people thought, and it's funny when you listen to people outside an Okapi enclosure for the first time, they're like, oh, is it a giraffe or is it a zebra? Because it has, like Angie said, the qualities of both. You have this really mini giraffe. You know, it still stands seven, eight, nine feet tall at the head, only about five feet at the shoulder or one and a half meters at the shoulder, but it still kind of looks like a giraffe. You know, it has a long neck, not as long as a giraffe's, but still pretty big. And it's dis- yeah, it's disproportionate to its body where you're like, oh, right. it's a long neck. <laughs> yeah, not like a horse with a long neck. This thing's like a long neck. And the zebra part comes in because they have this amazing striping in their their hind end, like striping patterns on a zebra, and their front legs. It's just gorgeous. Black and white yeah, striping. It's, and it's beautiful and similar to zebras. It's like a fingerprint. The stripes are unique to each okapi. Right, right. And then their, their, their top coat and the coat around their barrel, their neck, and their face is this reddish brown, dark brown. And in some lights, it can almost look maroon. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. That's pretty it's cool. The, the, the coat on this is is beautiful. So please, you know, look at the show notes. You can see you know, right up there the picture of this this animal. It's just gorgeous. They're just gorgeous. And then they also have these huge ears too. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, Chris, I was just yeah, gonna say yeah. that. Like, I, I we, yeah. I, you know, it's silly to focus on an animal's ears, but these are some of the most beautiful ears I think in the animal kingdom. They're big yeah. and they're round and they can actually manipulate them so they can move one at a time in order right. to listen to different sounds on one side or the other. And it's just, they're just beautiful, man. Right, right. They are. They are. And their faces, they have this they have this dark coat, chocolate, reddish brown over most of their body, but then their faces are lighter and almost mm-hmm. have a little bit of whitish in it too. 
So right, right. when they just turn around and look at you, it's just this really cool animal. Yeah, and those ears are, are just critical for, for catching sound waves, right? That, that mm-hmm. directs it into the inner ear so they can detect, you know, people, predators, and everything. And that's where they really they have this name called the elusive okapi, or even some people used to call them the African unicorn because they didn't believe it existed. Mm-hmm. Yes. The okapi is from deep in the Congo, or it was first discovered in the Ituri forest in uh, today Congo or the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo. Which was formerly known as Zaire years ago. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this was actually one of the last large megafauna ever to be discovered. So out of all the species of, of large mammal, unless unless there's one out there that we haven't found yet. Right, maybe there is. Yeah, but this was the last big one because it just, it was so hard to, to find. You know, imagine these deep, deep forests where people hadn't been. So it's really interesting listening to how these animals were discovered. So in Africa, they were, these, they were known from the, the local indigenous people that there was this animal for thousands of years they knew it existed yeah the, the indigenous people always know these things it's it's more the right. it's more the westerners that need to get uh yeah. get caught up right right and so yeah so the the early explorers heard about this mythical creature and the story goes with one of the local tribes and this was the late 1800s and they described this creature and they called it an adi so uh ATTI and in their language, it meant donkey. So they thought, they were saying, oh, it's this creature. And they're like, oh, it's Addy, like your donkey that they were using to carry their, their supplies. And then in 1901, Sir Harry Johnston, when he was exploring Central Africa, he was actually given the skin or the, the this crazy coat that we just described and a skeleton of the copy. And they were finally able to describe this animal, but still had not seen a live one yet. And it's still elusive. Still elusive. And what I think is kind of interesting about this story is that Harry Johnston, which years later the Okapi scientific name would be named after, uh, he was the British governor of Uganda at the time. And he had found out that some not-so-nice people were exploiting local indigenous pygmy people that were native to the region. Mm -hmm. And Harry thought this was very inappropriate, and so he rescued the local pygmies and returned them to their homes and deep into the villages of what is now the Congo. And they were very grateful for this, and they are one of the ones that mostly confirmed the, the rumors and said, yes, this is... There is this animal out there that's big and unique and very elusive. And so he was, right. you know, he was one of the first ones then to actually send back the remains of a carcass to London. So then right. the West, the Western world could be enlightened about this new creature. And it caused a huge media sensation. Uh, even 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 back yeah. in the early 1900s, that the the world was just in shock that they hadn't hadn't known about this, and so yeah, a lot right. of it's thanks to this uh, Henry Johnston and and him wanting to help people, and then of course the native people appreciating that, and then sharing this this uh, really cool you know donkey unicorn or yeah or whatever yeah. <laughs> or whatever you know sharing it with them and, and saying yes you know you're not crazy there really yeah. is, there really is this big mammal that 
that you guys don't know yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, uh, think about it. I mean, you know, for thousands of years, going back to Roman times, I mean, they knew all these big creatures from Africa that they were importing into Europe. Zoos were always a big thing for hundreds of years, you know, putting animals on display. So here you have this large, large mammal. Gorgeous. That no one knew about. Unique. Yeah. yeah. So you can imagine in the 1900s, it'd be like, oh my God, look at this thing. So you're right. So it was named after him and it's the scientific name is Okapi John Stoney. Very so good. Very. Got, that's an easy, yeah. fun one. Okapi oh, John easy. Stoney. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Even I can say that one. And, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, just to kind of wrap it up again on how they were found. So in 1909, Americans went in there, did catch some live ones, babies that didn't, that died. So, you know, that's not great, but they I know, finally Chris, did. Why, why are you bringing the podcast down? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. But the first one was brought into captivity in 1919 okay. in the Antwerp Zoo. So mm-hmm. they were the first ones able to bring it into captivity and keep it alive. And we are where we are today. So, you know, a, a really neat, neat mammal that we're talking about today. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Their conservation why should we care? Why do we care about this animal? Well, I mean, for me, number one, just take a look at them. They're. They're just so beautiful, and I know I'm going to say that over and over on this podcast today, but they're just really striking and pleasing to the eye, and they're so rare and unique, and most recently, Mm -hmm. you know, to the Western world, recently discovered, uh, yet known by the locals within the region for centuries. And to Mm -hmm. this day, the Okapi definitely is the cultural symbol of the Congo. And the Okapi is also Mm -hmm. considered an umbrella species, and this really beautiful and, and immense biodiversity of the forest because if you can protect the okapi right because they're so awesome mm-hmm. and you want to protect them you're also going to protect yeah. elephants chimpanzees and gorillas so some other megafauna that happen to live in the area mm-hmm. now it's interesting you say that as being a flagship species and i'm sitting here thinking about you know the trickle up and trickle down that's kind of a, a constant theme you and i go back and forth about and so if you're right, if you pour resources into protecting this one species in that region, you're protecting a whole bunch of other species because that part of the world is just a lot of these animals are under extreme threat. You know, get my elephant plug in, forest elephants in this part of the world are, are getting slaughtered, slaughtered for their, their uh, tusks. So there's a lot of instability and war in the region. And so if we're able to protect, you know, pour resources into, you know, a flagship species that people want to save, you know, think about all the frogs. You know, we talked about frogs, you know, a lot of few podcasts ago and and in the future, we'll talk about other species, you know, the the species that people don't think about. Well, and the forest, because they'll copy need the forest and we'll get more into their nutrition in the podcast, but they eat the, the, they browse on the plant foliage. And so... These areas that are preserving the okapi are also preserving immense amounts of rainforest. Right. So a lot of plant species, a lot of frogs, a lot of insects, and then, of course, a lot of larger mammals like the elephants and gorillas. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's it's really something we can get behind, uh, at least that I can get behind, and hopefully learning more about their unique physiology and we'll, we'll get the listeners more excited and wanting to, right. t- to help these guys or at least recognize them at a zoo and saying, you know, 
Oh yeah, you know they're yeah, really yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that podcast. And I, oh, I know all about them. So t- talk a little bit more about their background. The the Okapi giraffes are from the same family. They're both even-toed ungulates. Now Angie did say she loves ungulates, but her favorite is the odd-toed, the single-toed. Generally, the yes. the horses and rhinos are mm-hmm. Angie's babies. But but I we say, but I can do I can do some even-toed too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything with hoof I, and horns, right? Mm-hmm. I can do some aerosidactyls. Yeah. Even-toed ungulates generally you think of like cows and the cloven hoof, goats, sheep. They have two toes and. Actually, reading some of the history on the Okapi, the early explorers knew there was this large cloven-hoofed animal. That's why it was so mythical, because they saw their tracks. But, you know, huge tracks, not little deer tracks or little antelope tracks. It was huge tracks, and then they knew there was some sort of large creature there. Now, the Okapis belongs to the family of Giraffidae, and only the Okapi and giraffes are the ones remaining. Now... They are, it's interesting. The Okapi and giraffes have, have some things that are in common. They both have seven cervical vertebrae, but the giraffe neck is much longer. Obviously. Much longer. Much, much longer. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, we'll do giraffes this year. We'll, we'll have to do giraffes this year because their physiology is incredible. But Okapi is very similar, right? So they have these things called ossicones which are two skin-covered horns on their heads. Generally, the males, the and, and Angel will get into some of the differences of the males and females. Females do have bumps. And then they both have dark-colored tongues, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and what's interesting with the ossicones is that if you think of horns, which, of course, we've talked about on this podcast, in antelope or in cattle species, mm-hmm. those are actually derived from bone. But right. ossicones are derived from ossified cartilage rather than living bone. So uh-huh. that's why it's a little different. And they're covered with skin, like Chris said, instead of um, fur or uh, like velvet in the antlers. Yeah. So, so so somewhat different, but very similar to what's found in giraffes. Yeah, and if you haven't heard the reindeer episode, Angie goes into crazy detail about uh, <laughs> antlers, but it's so awesome. It is like such... An amazing uh, mammal adaptation. It's the coolest one grow. out there. I mean, it's a lot of growth it's, in a short period of time just to oh, insane. just to score a babe. <laughs> Hell <Basically>. yeah, baby! <laughs> Start growing. Like I said, we need to. I, I need to write a book on how males in the wild or how other mammals attract females. I'll, I'll be a millionaire. You I'm will. On it. You will. I'm going to work on it tonight. It's, it's so different than <laughs> in the human world where the women are the ones that have to do everything. It's I'm calling. Oh, uh, I, I, I'm calling BS on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So getting back to copies, ossicones. We were at ossicones. Yes. Yeah, the yeah, ma- the males. The males have these little horns. Uh, the females, for the most part, they're absent. They have hair yeah. whorls, uh, little bumps. Just to kind of jump into some of their life cycle. Again, since they're elusive, not easy to study. You know what we know from them is from captivity. Right, right. Um, it's really hard to trek something in the woods that dense, dense woods up in the mm-hmm. elevation that's shy and elusive. It's only active diurnally and maybe, maybe, yeah, in, right. and sometimes in the darkness. They right. they migrate a lot, so 
and they're solitary, right? So right. the other thing, too, is a lot of times researchers have great luck in some of the different reserves in Africa studying giraffe and elephants because you can mm-hmm. watch family dynamics and watch them interact right. with each other and what they do and who's dominant and who's not. And I think that in you know, with Okapi, they're solitary. So you're lucky if you... Find, you're lucky if you find one, and then then it's just that one. So right. how it interacts with um, another okapi during breeding season, which is the only time they come together, is not really been seen in the wild. I mean, still mm, to this day. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> that's where studying them in a captive setting is really helped re- researchers and scientists and zoologists understand more about how to help protect these guys. And how to help, right? Because, and how to care for them too, of course, in a, in a captive setting. Right, because you know, if you're in the the deepest, darkest jungle you could imagine in Africa, you're in a region that's hard to get to. You're in a region that very remote, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, pretty contentious, you know, off and on. It this animal hears you way before you even know it's there, so it's going the opposite direction of you, and. You know, yeah, it's, and a like flight, you said, it's a flight animal, so right. it typically wants to flee from something it's scared of. Right, it's extremely which, shy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 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 just recently, they've discovered that they're diurnal. For a long time, they thought they were nocturnal, and that's why you never saw them. But we know that's not true, right? That they actually are diurnal. Some of the things that they've been able to kind of track a little bit. Some studies have shown the male territories could be greater than ten square kilometers or six miles, but they tend to think that's about right overlaps with some female territories so females are about half that is is from the one study i saw and males will migrate continuously while females will tend to be somewhat sedentary uh, right and that yeah there are some they can overlap but typically they don't interact unless it's breeding season a right. male and female mm-hmm. right right yeah it's just you know cr- uh, crazy 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 so you know i guess that's a good segue into kind of some of their behavior and and what you could find, I mean, besides what we know in captivity. Right. Well, and I think that's the beautiful thing about research and animal lovers out there like myself. Um, I found when I was preparing for this podcast, I found myself, like I said, just watching the videos of them eating. Right, <laughs> and I was right, in heaven. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course, herbivores, that's what they tend to do. They tend to eat most of the time. Uh-huh. Uh, graze or these guys browse. But... Yeah, because of because of st- diligent researchers and zookeepers and animal care staff members, we have learned a lot about them, and at least in a captive setting. And we know that they're essentially solitary. They come together to breed. It's been reported that grooming is a really common practice for okapi, and they'll focus on their neck. And when they groom themselves, they use their tongue, of course, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. As, as you would think a dog or a cat or something. Uh, or And interestingly enough about the okapi, their tongue can be 18 inches long. Wow. So that's... <laughs> I know I don't know the metrics on that off the top of my head, but that's a it's a foot and a half, okay? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's a long tongue. And yeah, it's like course, forty centimeters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, they evolved this tongue for a purpose because that's what nature does. It does things with purpose, typically, and the purpose is so that they can reach leaves that are higher up, similar to a giraffe or 
you use its neck to get different things that other animals mm-hmm. can't specialize in. Mm-hmm. But they've also <laughs> loved to use their tongue to clean themselves. And right. they are the only mammal that can use its tongue to clean its ears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they have really long faces like giraffes or horses kind of, if yeah, you can yeah. picture that, or zebras. So yeah, that tongue goes up to the ear. To the eye. That's crazy. Cleans out the eye. Keeps the keeps the flies away and whatnot. So yeah, it's pretty yeah, very cool. Uh, very cool uh, adaptation. Can you imagine so, licking your own ear? Oh my god! I, it's a built-in Q-tip. Are you kidding me? I love it. I love the idea. <laughs> <That's so> disgusting. <laughs> All that earwax. Yum. Oh. Well, if you well, but Chris, if you clean them out every day, there's not going to be that much earwax. So, oh god. So yeah, the very very talented uh, Okapi can do that. Yeah. And yeah. and as Chris has hinted to earlier, it is a docile, uh, tranquil animal. Shy people call it along being along with being elusive. However, it, it is a hoofstock animal, and it has mm-hmm. strong, powerful legs, and so it can kick kick out at the butt and use its head to show aggression when it needs to. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also know, too, that the males will uh, communicate with other males by marking territories with their urine, which mm-hmm. is often common in hoofstock species. Mm-hmm. And the females have uh, common defecation sites or hmm. poop piles. Or if you're a zookeeper, that's the, your favorite animal because it's super easy to, to, <laughs> to clean, clean up after because yeah. mm-hmm, they all poop in a similar spot. Yeah, that reminds me. Um, I was gonna say that reminds me when, yeah, that that behavior. Like I've never really seen it before with hoofstock. And I remember when you dragged me out when we started all this fun stuff way back when, looking at small wild ass, and I have a video of hetero marking. So there was mm-hmm. a one of the female Jennies, she went and pooped, and we're watching, you know, doing her behavior study, and I watch another one come by, sniff, and poop on the same spot. And I was like, What <laughs> yep. what is going on? It's like dog you know, dog marking? And I've mm-hmm. never saw that before. And I went back to my office and looked it up and realized that was one thing they do, and they think it might be to, to hide numbers from predators and stuff like that. Okay. That yeah, makes sense. yeah, it was really crazy. Like I, yeah, so Copy does that. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The females do. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Another, another cool thing that they do that's different than um, most of the hoofstock that I've I've worked with or studied, but they will rub their necks against trees, mm-hmm. and what it does is it leaves a brown extrudate, right. which is like a brown substance, uh, and it probably researchers don't know why. So there's a uh, interesting job for who want, whoever wants to answer it. But this this brown this brown kind of ooze is probably to keep to mark their territory, right? Right. I, I, right. I presume, maybe. And I also read because I remember this is interacting with the okapi. One of the things I got to do is you know pet it a little bit and and pat it on the neck. And you walk sure, away, and, Chris- and your hands are disgusting because ah, of all right. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of mm-hmm. all that sticky goo. And mm-hmm. what I did read is is they kind of think it might help them stay waterproof with their coats. Ah, that right. might be Well, and oh, go ahead. No, 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 I'd say that may be one reason. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I think the other thing I was going to ask you, I haven't got to touch one, and so you have that one up on Woo-hoo! me. <laughs> I've, yeah, now I want to go rub on some okapi, man. They're uh yeah. but I have to ask you since you've had that privilege. All right. What did their what minus the brown 
you know, sticky, oozy yeah. stuff on your sticky, sticky stuff on your hands. But what did their coat feel like? Because I've heard it dis- be described as short but velvet-like. Right. Yeah. That's what I remember. It's soft. It's it's. Yeah. This is going back. Uh, we're going back ten years, ten twelve years. But it. Yeah, I remember it was it was pretty soft. Like it wasn't. It was not rough like some other hoof stock or even like a horse coat. You know, which I've done. It's, it feels like a horse that had like a nice shampoo and conditioned and got like dried like really silky, nice. Like yeah, yeah, smooth and velvety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and of course my favorite section or one of my favorite sections of this podcast is vocalizations. And mm-hmm. Okapi definitely communicate with each other. Uh, a lot of times females when they're ready to breed, eh, but their vocal cords are poorly developed compared to a lot of other hoof stock. Uh, maybe because they're like a living fossil. Yeah. But they three sounds that they commonly do make is called the chuff. And mm-hmm. that's a contact call that's used by both male and females. They also moan. So that's going to be right. a female during courtship. Like, hey, hey buddy, <laughs> come on over here. So she moans. And then the infants, when they're under stress or they're not happy, they make a vocalization called a, a bleat. Right. Unfortunately, though, I'm not able to give you an example because... There's right. not one out there for me to use that I have access to. So it goes to sh- it goes to show that there's just not a lot, uh, you know these guys are still very secretive. They're still even even though a fair amount are you know live under human care. There's still a lot that we don't know. We right. don't know or that isn't heard or t- or fully understood. Maybe I'll have Jesse uh, mimic some sounds. But it's interesting. You know, you're talking about like you know they're primitive or they don't vocalize as much and. This is what I love about learning about all these new species. You think about it, they don't need to really vocalize, right? They don't want to vocalize. Mm-hmm. They want to be just left alone. They don't want to highlight themselves. Mm-hmm. So they haven't really had a nope. need to develop, you know, a rich vocabulary. So I bet you they're not a yeah. herd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're not a herd animal. So they don't need to be communicating with each other all the time. They only really need to be able to talk to each other to find each other to, yeah. to breed maybe we need to find you and a, then be on their merry way find you some money for a postdoc because i would be really it would be awesome to study okapi's social behavior because i bet you that even though their vocalizations aren't that complex i bet you their non-vocal communication is very complex i would i would agree with that hypothesis yeah. chris uh hoofstock and hoofstock in general yeah. whenever i'm giving horse lessons or talking about right. horse behavior i always talk about the two main forms of communication right. are verbal, of course, uh, what, what sound does a horse make? But then the nonverbal right. in the horse world is way more important right. than the verbal. Right. I mean, you can, you, you can read their body language and know a lot, pretty much a lot of what they're thinking or be able to anticipate what their behavior right. is. And uh, for me, it's second nature because I've been working with horses for 30 some <laughs> years <laughs> the last 80 and years so, of Angie's life <laughs> yeah so and in my previous right. life too so but yeah no no but you bring up a really yeah. good point and um you know and i and i don't know how much research has been done on that but i i guarantee especially between a mother and a calf right because she right. needs to talk to that calf all the time about what to do, what not to do, how to behave, right. how not to behave. But if she's not making all these vocalizations, she must be doing it in more non-vocal uh, ways. Non-vocal ways, which and, I mean, I, I 
I, I non-vocally communicate with my <laughs> boys a lot. And I, where I just, I just look at them. I give them the, the stare with my lip kind of tightened. Yeah. Like, you so, better understand what uh, I'm saying, son. So, yeah, us, us mothers have a lot of uh, non-vocal communications that we do and, 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 um, and, the, and kids pick up on it. <laughs> yeah, well, I was doing a lot of vocal communication yesterday morning driving out to that gorge because the boys weren't happy. Then at the end of the day, ah. they're both laughing in the back of the car about yeah. how much fun they had. But no, so just benefit for the listeners real quick too. When we talk about non-vocal communication, think of body posture. In horses, it's easy. We look at the ears. We always say the ears are the barometer of the animal's mood. But in an okapi, it could be, you know, what's a threat behavior for them, which would be interesting because they're pretty docile. What would it be? But, you know, like a horse is either going to pin its ears and drop its head, get ready to bite you, or turn around where it's going to kick you. Yeah. So that could be something, you know, that a copy would do, but non-vocal versus us who like yell or a primate, you know, screaming as a vocal communication. So anyways, yeah, that was that interesting, really interesting stuff. Well, and I think with Okapis living under human care, I think some of the, of course they care about their social behaviors, but one of the first things they wanted to study with these guys is what they eat mm-hmm. and how best to feed them. And when they're not living in the, in the Congo, in the middle of Central right. Africa, how do we feed them in North America or in Europe? Right. That was a huge priority. And, and, and then secondly, the other priority, of course, is breeding them. How, what, are mm-hmm. the, what are the behaviors needed to make them happy so they can breed and so we can mimic their naturalistic behaviors right. in the wild? So, for instance, you're probably not going to see a lot of males and females together in a you know, in a captive setting because that's right. not how they would be found in, in the wild. Right. Um, now you'll see moms and offspring together, maybe siblings together for a while, or females probably mm-hmm. can be nice to each other together. So, but there's a lot to learn about these animals in order to take them, in order to take the best care of them, which is the number one goal of, right. um, you know, zoos and conservation centers. So that being said, we, we do know, a lot about their nutrition because that was a very important thing to study. Right. And it's made me think, you know, about your research, you know, and how it affects animals in captivity. You know, you're doing this, this phytoestrogen work and doing, I was actually bragging about you yesterday to, to not, you know, um, pat, pat yourself on the back, but Angie's doing some incredible work that potentially has some really game changing stuff for a lot of captive species. And so Jesse and I were talking about your work on white rhinos this weekend and how we thought, you know, bringing them to captivity and knowing their diets. So you're right. So with Okapi. You're making me blush, Chris. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) You've worked very hard. So Dr. Adkins, very, pretty quick. The nutrition is very interesting because it's so varied. It is, you know, their browser. So that Mm -hmm. means they like to eat plants, uh, bushes, leaves. Uh, they eat fungus, some types mm-hmm. of fungus, the fruit. They found them, they actually uh, graze or graze. They browse on ferns. Mm-hmm. And so over a hundred different species of plants, which is insane. It is insane. insane. They're designed with that tongue to reach and pull up and grab right. whatever leaf they want. And, and interestingly enough, they're Africa's only ungulate that browse predominantly on the forest leaves. Right. Uh, so giraffes are going to browse more on the savanna mm-hmm. type uh, shrub leaves and trees. 
So mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting. And, and they're ruminants, though, and that's very yeah. similar to cows, different than mm-hmm. horses. Horses are not ruminants. Horses are considered yep. monogastrics like us humans, so they have one stomach. Whereas an okapi or a cow, which is a ruminant, they have four chambers to their stomach and ferment right. grasses, chew cud, uh, which is a very common behavior. Anybody who's observed cows, you can see them ruminating, right? Uh, right, right, where right. They're chewing their, their uh, they basically regurgitate some of the grass they've eaten and rechew it and then swallow it again. Right. Yeah, and they're they're breaking down the particle size so they can digest it better. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to get whatever nutrients they can out of it. And researchers do know that these over 100 plant species that the copies are known to eat, some of them are poisonous to humans and other animals. They don't know how the copies do fine with them. Uh, right. That's I guess more studies later on in the future, but they do know that they do okay with it. And when researchers do fecal analysis, they find that of those 100 plant species, there's no dominant type of food. Hmm. Um, they, they'll they eat, like you said, shrubs, mm-hmm. um, fungus, fruits, grasses, most lots of leaves and tree buds. And they right. eat up to 20 to 27 kilograms or, for me, 40 to 60 pounds a day. So that's a lot. Wow. That's a lot of yeah, food. Yeah, they eat a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that, that mm-hmm. is a lot. And it was interesting. You're talking about the poisonous plants. I remember the white rhino episode or the rhino episode. We talked about white rhinos able to eat some of those plants. And I think, you know, part of the rumen does protect animals from like cows can eat moldy hay and survive. Mm -hmm. It's not good. It's not preferable. You don't want to feed an animal moldy anything, but they can eat moldy hay and the rumen will basically cleanse it for them. So it doesn't kill them. Or you feed moldy hay to a horse, you're going to kill it. Or mm-hmm. You can kill it. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting some of these species that that have evolved to be able to eat plants that might be poisonous to us or other animals. I did see a, a, a study where they actually they eat clay to try to get some of their minerals. Right. Is, yep. Their body knows yeah. what they need, and so they'll go down to the river basin and consume. Yeah. Some of the, probably while they're drinking water, consume some of this clay, which helps them meet their mineral nutrient requirements. Which right, is a, right. an ice adaptation, um, and so yeah. Uh, but there's still a lot that we that we don't know, and when we're oh, obviously, yeah. When when uh, animal care specialists are trying to mimic their diets in um, in a captive setting, there can definitely be some challenges as to what do we feed these guys? Do we feed them hay? Do mm-hmm. we feed them leaves? Do mm-hmm. we feed them pellet mm-hmm. food? Uh, but in the past twenty to thirty years. Uh, they're doing a really good job of mimicking their diets to the best the best of the ability, and then also using enrichment to mimic how how they get their food. So right. they a lot of times you'll see it hanging up high, like in a hay bag or leaves mm-hmm. tied up together on a on a line or up against a tree to encourage that okapi to exhibit its natural behavior of browsing and being selective mm-hmm. for food. Yeah, yeah, zoos do a really good job. You know, the credited zoos that, that have Hokapi uh, do a really good job of, of hanging that stuff. As far as conservation status, these guys are endangered. Their population's decreasing, you know, 10 to 20,000 maybe in the wild. Don't really know. It's tough. They're secretive. They live in a dense forest. They're mm-hmm. secretive. They camouflage into the foliage and they mm-hmm. are only diurnal. So these estimates are, are the best guess. Right. And I... 
you know, whenever we do these population analyses and we think about this, and I think of 10 to 20,000. So I think of, okay, a basketball stadium or a hockey. I've been to a few hockey games and that's about 15,000 people. So you imagine in that small arena, that's the entire population of that species. Correct. Not many. Not many. Right? Not many. Not many. Now, yeah, if I'm dating myself going way back to the 80s, um, <laughs> when I saw, I went to actually a Raider game. Don't know how I survived the LA Coliseum at a Raider game being a Charger fan, but there was a hundred thousand people in there, right? And that's still, I mean, that's huge, huge stadium. But if that's your entire population, I mean, even at that, that is tiny for an st- entire species mm-hmm. that live in a, you know, that so, live in a specific area have pretty specific needs as far as right. as far as diet go it, it yeah it's not a high number at all especially no in, no um 10 years ago they thought or maybe maybe more like 15 years ago the estimates were at about 40,000 so mm-hmm. in that time in the 10 years time it's it's dropped drastically so right i think that that's that's what's really concerning Right, uh, let right. alone other many, many other issues. It's very complex. Many other issues, including climate change, we touched on a little right. bit. But then, of course, the the instability of mm-hmm. uh, the country and countries around it. Mm-hmm. So that's why that's why there's a lot of concern and a lot of push towards um, helping these helping these guys out. And right. now in the Congo, under Congolese law, it's the Okapi is a national symbol, and they mm-hmm. are fully protected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we all know that that doesn't stop poachers, and no. and they're also not included in the CITES appendices either. So right. as far as international trade goes, there's really not much documentation about that. I, I suppose they must think because they're protected under Cong- Congolese law that they don't right. maybe don't need to be part of CITES. But they live in these forests, and forests we all know are being um, devastated due to logging and human mm-hmm. settlement. Mm-hmm. And then Okapi, and it, it makes some sense to me, but of course, uh, it's hard to, it's a hard pill to swallow, but they are extensively hunted for their bush meat and their skin. Right. Yeah. The, um, the, the, the good news too, you're, you're right about the Congolese, but they do have the Okapi Wildlife Reserve, and that was placed on the World Heritage Site list. So I know in my interview with Niaga, he was talking about Catbaw. They're fighting to get Catbaw in that region on the World Heritage Site list because that really pours in a lot of resources to protect that area of the world. So mm-hmm. the, the Okapi, fortunately, are in that wildlife reserve. So they think it protects about 5,000. That's what the uh, the IUCN had uh, written down about that. So that's good. That's good. Mm-hmm. And that is good. And the other good news, too, is that in accredited zoos around the world, there are about a hundred or so Okapis living under human care, which really isn't a lot if you think about. No, and uh, they're at n- not a lot of zoos house them. They're at very selective zoos, special zoos. So, but th- there's still at least a population that's outside of Africa that could potentially acts as a genetic bank or reserve, right, right. for what's happening um, over in the Congo. But right. With that being said, though, like a lot of large mammals that we've discussed on this podcast is they're, they do have a very long life. Long, uh, they can live up to 30 years, 20 to 30 years, maybe 15 in the wild, depending. 
Males will reach maturity after two years or so, and, and similar to females, a year and a half to two years. So it takes them a little mm-hmm. while to sexually mature. But then when a female does get pregnant, she's only going to give birth to one calf. Twins are very rare, similar to like horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she is pregnant for a very long time. <laughs> Longer than I'd want to be pregnant, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> nine months wasn't enough for you? Oh, nine oh, months was geez, too much yeah. for you? Mm-hmm. Yes, no. These poor Okapi girls, they're looking at uh, 13 and a half oh, to wow. 15 months. Wow. So wow. a long time, a long yeah. time. And so they're not, they can have calves into older age, but you know, may, on a good, on a good cycle, they're maybe having calves every other year. Maybe. Yeah. If. So yeah. if, if they can find a male and then if they get pregnant and the pregnancy sticks. So uh, their, so their turnover time is slow, like a lot of large mammals. And with, with that comes the pressure of they're not able to reproduce quickly. And so when we're wiping out th- hundreds or thousands of years due to either poaching or deforestation, that's going to be really hard to rebound from that number. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's sad with these large mammals because, you know, they're they're easy easier to hunt than smaller stuff. And it takes so long to, to get to adult stage, you know, and so many things have to go right. And it's not like, you know, where you see the thing that comes to my mind is wild pigs. You know, they, they breed, they have a litter, they mature within a year, they're breeding again. And, you know, your, your generation interval is very short. Whereas something like an elephant or an acapi or a rhino or even some whales, you know, it, it takes a few years before, a, mm-hmm. two to three years, you know. Well, Chris, something else to think about is then... You a cute little adorable okapi is born, and if you haven't gone online and checked out either YouTube oh, yeah. videos of a They're little, up there. Yeah. oh my goodness, of a little okapi calf bouncing around, you are missing out because it is super precious. But what what some of their natural behavior is that when the calf is born, of course it can walk pretty quickly, obviously like a horse, um, but it. The juveniles or the babies are kept in hiding. The mom will den it down in like a little nest area, similar to maybe what deer will sometimes do. And then she leaves it there and and goes out and forages for the day or whenever she's, whatever her time her foraging is. And so the offspring is left there very vulnerable. So just because an okapi gives birth to a healthy calf, there's... Oh, infant mortality from predators. Right. Uh, the uh, a common predator to an okapi is going to be the leopard, right. and so they they don't always make. Once they're born, they don't always make it, and it takes them you know a good a good six months to become a little bit more independent. And it takes it can take you know, and then they they have to develop into adults and and become independent. So it's yeah, it's not a fast life cycle, and. And we're still learning a lot about it to how, right. how, how we not only how to do it better in a, in a captive setting, but how do we do it? How do we protect them more, even though they're in this protected space? And right, right. interestingly, there's been a, f- a few different ways that researchers and zoological managers and veterinarians have explored of how to take care of okapi calves when they are living under human care. Uh, because, 
they had noticed that the moms were either not taking care of the babies or taking care of the babies too much and using right. that long tongue to overgroom them. Which oh yeah, I can imagine. Mm-hmm, which seems like cute, and moms do need to groom their babies, but if they overdo it, it could actually harm the offspring, mm-hmm. harm the calf, and so. This is, goes to show you how dedicated uh, uh, zoo staff and researchers are. Luckily, mm-hmm. when they're under human care, there's no, <laughs> there's no leopards, leopards around the court. Yeah. Yeah. So they're yeah. safe. But, but these are all things that, that, that people are learning to try to figure out how to take better care of them so they can be more successful, not only in a captive setting, but also so when they are in the wild or reintroduced into the wild, that they can live a more natural, healthy life. So it's, right, right. it's, it's just really – I really applaud – I I really applaud the people that are are behind a lot of the management, the trying to understand mm-hmm. the management and the behavior of a species that we don't know a heck of a lot about, right? Right, we're, right, right. We're still learning. Some of the papers I was looking at were from 2017, 2016, as far as uh, a lot of times in the um, in the researcher and zoo world will want to communicate with other scientists and animal managers and the best way to take care of these animals and their welfare, and, and there's we're still working on it with, with a lot of the species, of course, but Okapi right. def- and I, definitely. I, I hope the listeners appreciate, because I'm really learning to appreciate this. Every species we pick, there are people around the world researching that species, fighting to save that species or group of animals like poison dart frogs, things like that. There are so many people out there doing so much great work that bravo to you you know andy and i are just two voices i'm inspired every week chris i mean yeah you know for it's incredible oh it's It's so incredible incredible. it's so inspirational it it really makes me love this uh this little part-time hobby you and i have going on in fact this week i have of course my two organizations but the, the first organization just like has blows my mind away it's called the okapi conservation organization so you can find them at www.okapiconservation.org they were established a little over 30 years ago in 1987 to of course protect the okapi in the congo Mm -hmm. and their focus is keeping these guys safe through wildlife protection mechanisms and also through learning and so in 1987, the Okapi Conservation Project was initiated in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was then Zaire. And their main objective is obviously to protect the wild Okapi. And as you had mm-hmm. mentioned, Chris, they do this by reserving over 13,000 square kilometers of rainforest. Okay, And it's, mm-hmm. a world, it's a world heritage site. And, of course, that protects the okapis plus elephants and primates, birds, amphibians, mm-hmm. all these mm-hmm. other species under their umbrella. And they work with tons of European and American zoos and conservation organizations on how to provide care for them and how to learn what, they, what they've learned about them. And they work with the locals on how to be less destructive when they're farming. So a typical way to farm land in this region is what's called slash and burn and so Mm -hmm. the okapi conservation group they've helped work with the farmers on a better practice and they've provided provided man over like forty thousand tree seedlings to replant some of the devastated forest areas right right 
They've taught the villagers how to use alternative crops like trees and fruits and vegetables and and what's known as better farming methods or sustainable agriculture. Mm -hmm. And then within the community, they work with donors and partners to provide all these programs. They help out schools, health clinics, fresh water sources. They do emergency medical care. And they do all of this, Chris. They've been doing this. They continue to do this. They do all this in the Congo, which, as you had mentioned, is there's often different uh, clashes with right, right. Uh, with militia and um, different yeah, it's war. A, it's a tough pl- tough place to live. Yeah. yeah, different wars going on, and so in June 2012, the staff at the Okapi Wildlife Reserve uh, were were attacked, and right. um, they think it was retaliation for maybe turning in some poachers and doing their mm-hmm, job, right? Mm-hmm. So they came mm-hmm. and lashed back at them, attacked them, and they, they killed six guards, some more staff wow. that was, like, volunteering there. And then they had uh-huh. a couple uh, – they had over 14 copies too, that they, they killed at the breeding center. Oof. So 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 imagine. So that happens, okay? Right. And guess what that staff does? They dust their bootstraps off and they uh-huh. – and built – better measures to protect themselves and protect their animals. And they just keep on fighting the good fight. So like you said, yeah. when, after reading that, I just, it, it's, it's horrible that that happened to the, to this group that are just trying to help these poor old copy and, yeah. and, and in the local community too, right. Giving the local helping uh, yeah, economically yeah, yeah, yeah. helping all the locals and the locals love them. And still there, right. you know, there's this, these group of bandit militias that are poachers that, you know, want to do bad things and and yet this group uh the okapi wildlife uh people say you know what we're going to keep doing what we do and they do keep going yeah keep going and they have so many success stories yeah yeah, that's what makes this so amazing is just there's people like that that are giving their lives up for the animals yes easily yeah it's insane easily and then and so that that rolls into my second organization of the week which that i've of course been wanting to talk about since We've started this podcast, but this group is is near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's uh, the our hearts, our, our hearts, hearts our, yes. uh, yeah, our hearts. Yeah. It's a, a White Oak Conservation Center, uh, and you can reach them at www.whiteoakwildlife.org. Of course, both these groups are on Facebook too, so please like them, reach out to them, um, send them messages if you want more information. But White Oak is an amazing conservation facility oh, yeah. here in North Florida that, of course, promotes conservation through science, education, training, and collaboration. And they have over 16,000 acres of animals and, and, and people working together to help save these animals. And like you've mentioned earlier, some of the most endangered animals in the world, including the okapi and... Uh, and they're just a, an amazing facility, great animal care staff, awesome education. They are not open to the public uh, because that's how much they are dedicated to just doing what they do and doing it well. However, uh, multiple times throughout the years, they'll open their uh, open their gates up to the public so the public can learn about them, and, and they will do private tours. And they are working closely with Okapi. That's one of their flagship species. They are learning how to provide optimal health, husbandry, and nutrition to the Okapi so we can keep them around a lot longer. And, of course, they work with uh, groups in Africa, mainly the Okapi Conservation Organization, and they're just 
great ambassadors for how to take great care of Okapi and how to also work overseas with their collaborators in order to promote conservation and other initiatives such as that. So go check out White Oak. Right. Their website's amazing. They, are, they do yeah. amazing things. They've helped me out a lot with some of my research. They just want, they want what's right for the animal's welfare and for science and learning more about them. It's by far one of my, and I know Angie and I have gone back year <laughs> after year, one of our favorite places it's on earth. It's my happy place. To go. <laughs> oh, my- I love every time I got to visit there. And that, you know, and we'll talk more with Jesse. That's where Jesse and I crossed paths years ago. Years ago, we didn't. Here we are meeting and becoming friends in New Zealand, but we had probably walked past each other at White Oak at some point years ago and didn't even know each mm-hmm. other, which is just so funny. And so, for those listeners out there that have maybe clicked on the show notes or Googled a picture of the copy and are still with us, a bless your hearts, mm-hmm. and and b wondering, well, geez, I can't go to the Congo. That's I'm you know I I'm not going to be able to help the Okapi. There's many many ways to help Okapi from your couch, and one of the first ways is to share knowledge about Okapis. I guarantee you, if you went and pulled ten of your closest friends, probably less than half have heard of an Okapi. Yeah, I don't even know what it so, is. So mm-hmm, you can spray or tell people about this podcast. Show people, invite friends to like the White Oak conservation page about Okapi, right. or even better still. Okapiconservation.org, their Facebook page. Invite your friends. Get them to see this beautiful, unique animal. It's not a joke. It's not a, um, a hybrid of two species. This is a real animal that's in big trouble, and they need our help. And another thing that's really, really critical, and I know you do this, Chris, and I do this in my family, but if you can recycle your old cell phones. Right. Yep, that's a good and one. And you say, well, why not? Why? Well, they contain Colton, which is a mineral mined right. in the forest of the Congo. And if you recycle your phones, that's less of this mineral that's needed and less mining in the forest. And the, uh, illegal mining is also devastating the Okapi habitat mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. of course, the Okapis then too. So that's something any anybody, I mean, we all get new phones like every year or every other right. year. So just make, and there's recycling centers. Some, some companies even offer incentive for money or discounts. So recycle your phone. Cool. And then just for us, you know, if you could follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Twitter, that'd be great. You can find us there, All Creatures Pod. Also, the links are on our website, so you can go www.allcreaturespod.com. That's where all the show notes are. Uh, the blog's been a little quiet lately, but I'll pick it back up once my container gets here. It's been two months without my desktop, but it should be here next week. So I'll hopefully be back in business and much more productive than I have been, you know, especially I'm enjoying New Zealand. So, <laughs> but anyways, thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.